Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people on whose lands we broadcast from today. I acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the contribution that they make to the life of this city and region. Today, a podcast with a difference. Today, we look back on 12 months of work with purpose. What we've done, the team at IPA and at Content Group have brought together almost a best of collection of the interviews that we have done since April of last year. I hope you enjoy it. Striding through a deserted Canberra centre in the early hours of the day after the Prime Minister closed the Australian borders in March, I had what's turned out to be a pretty good idea. During a national emergency that was COVID-19, it was clear that we would be hearing a lot from our elected political leaders. And that is as it should be. But it made sense that perhaps we should hear more from the men and women who lead the Australian Public Service because it would be them and the 150,000 Australians who they work with who would be designing, implementing and ultimately evaluating the national response to what was then an unknown and menacing threat. As a rule, public servants don't covet public profiles and we really don't know a lot about them. But surely, I thought to myself, in this time of crisis, it would be critically important for Australians to not only understand the important work that they were doing, but also to find out more about who are they, where do they come from, what motivates them and why have they dedicated their professional working lives to the benefit of all Australians. Well, as luck would have it, our partners, the Institute of Public Administration of Australia, or IPA, as it's more commonly known, were thinking exactly the same thing. Now, without a word of a lie, when I arrived at work that morning, there was a post-it note on my keyboard and it said, Call Drew. We need more content. Now, the Drew in question is the former CEO of IPA, Drew Baker. I picked up the phone, I pitched him the idea about the podcast, and he jumped at it. Work With Purpose was born. The name settled in just a few short hours, and a couple of weeks later, we were on air. As we celebrate this first anniversary, it's time to take a walk down memory lane. One of our most revealing interviews was with Dr Brendan Murphy, Australia's Chief Medical Officer at the time, and the now Associate Secretary of the Department of Health, Carolyn Edwards. I asked Dr Murphy about when COVID-19 first came onto his radar. Uh, it was early January when I was on holiday in Rome. Oh, good, yeah. good, uh, good place <laughs> to be now, but uh, then, but not now. Um, when we heard of these reports of a novel coronavirus in the city of Wuhan in China, but all the early reports were suggested that it was only being transmitted from animals to humans. So we were at that stage, I remember, going on ABC radio saying we're alert but not alarmed. And then on about the 19th, 20th of January, after a week of sort of radio silence from China, we suddenly got new information that 
There was human-to-human -human transmission. There were many more cases than we thought, that healthcare workers had been infected and there were seriously ill people on ventilators. And then, then our alarm bells started because whilst it was still possible at that stage to contain it in Wuhan, once you have sustained human-to-human -human transmission, the chances of containment are very much less and we, we really activated all of our processes from that moment on. Probably one of the most significant things we did was on the 1st of February, and I remember this well, uh, sitting in my house in Melbourne, looking at the data, and I said to my spouse, we're going to have to shut the borders to China. And I spoke to the health minister and the prime minister, and I can't talk about process, but, but by that night the borders were closed. Uh, which was an, And that probably was one of the most significant things that prevented us getting what happened in Italy, the US, the UK, where they had a lot of cases coming from China that spread in the community before they really even knew it. So we, we detected all of the early cases that came out of Wuhan. We had the tests, we had the public health tracing, and we isolated them. And at no stage have we had large-scale community transmission. The National Cabinet was formed, and that was the day that AHPPC, the principal committee, recommended to government that we needed to introduce <clears throat> major physical distancing measures. And over that coming week, um, uh, we closed down not nearly as much as countries like New Zealand. We kept a lot of things going, but we still put a lot of Australians out of work. And I remember driving to work a, four days after that, yeah. driving past a Centrelink office yeah. and seeing the queue yeah, right. and realising the enormity yeah. of what we'd done. Mm. It was the right thing to do and we would have had a, you know, terrible consequences if we hadn't done it. But I think what we did was timed appropriately. There were people clamouring for us to go harder for longer and for earlier. I think we got it about right. But but th those, you know, saying to government, you need to shut down the entire restaurants, teeter dining, cinemas, clubs, casinos, all of those sort of things, all the people who work in those places, that, that, that really weighed on me very heavily. So the, the first thing that happened is there was a long weekend, the Canberra Day weekend, which yep. we're all looking forward to having a weekend. And instead of having a weekend, we spent all three days uh, all of the executive and a lot of the rest of the department working up the $2.4 billion package that was announced shortly after that. Uh, and that was actually fundamental because we started working differently across teams um, and people were volunteering, I'll work up that measure, I'll work up the other, and just repurposing. So that set us up. We had to suspend a lot of the rules and processes that we normally work under. So that forced us into an environment where we were effectively rules-free and we had to revert to what is APS core business, exercising judgment, taking care, assessing value for money, making sure things were safe and effective. So it's principles-based principles principles decision-making. That's right. Okay. Now, is that something that stays post the, the, the crisis? Well, we're really determined at Health, we've been talking about this with the executive, to try and maintain all the things out of this crisis that have been best. Yeah. The breaking down of all the silos, the yeah. having people agile to move between jobs, more flexible workplace so people can work a mixture of home and in the office as needed, and trying to make sure that we retain that good decision-making 
And when the rules are reimposed, that we find ways to work to streamline and cut through red tape. Yeah, there was that great line um, from Greg Hunt where he said, you know, things that would normally have taken 10 years have been taking 10 days. Well, I think the department's been absolutely incredible and everybody in it that I've dealt with. And really, they've all been completely, completely committed to a single task. It went immediately over that weekend from an ordinary bureaucratic organisation to a 24-7 organisation where everybody did what they had to do. There was no, um, that's my patch. All yeah. of that stuff disappeared yeah. and people really embraced it. But probably the one thing that I'm most proud of is how in all of this time, through all of this really incredibly stressful time, you know, and things like we were doing contract negotiations in the middle of the night to buy ventilators, that sort of thing, uh, we were really frightened for our country as well. But I can't think of a harsh word that was exchanged amongst the teams. Uh, people were kind with one another and helpful. Uh, there was lots... Of, we had a roster at one stage to try and give people three hours off a week. Um, and people were just jumping up and down to say, no, so-and-so needs a break and so-and-so needs a break. This year, your roles have significantly changed from giving behind-closed-doors advice to government to being in the living rooms of the public almost daily. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that aspect of, of your role? I found it quite hard. Uh, I found uh, trying to take Saturdays off and I go for a walk around Lake Burley Griffin with my wife and I've taken to wearing sunglasses and a cap <laughs> because... <laughs> People, come, <laughs> people keep coming coming up to me, almost invariably very positive. You know, you're doing a great job, mate, but tell us what's happening. And I, I've, I'm quite uncomfortable with that. Uh, and then I was getting my hair cut in, and the little girl who was the daughter of the hairdresser came up and said to me, how did you get out of the television? Which, uh, <laughs> which was also pretty nice. So it's not a natural place for me. Dr Brendan Murphy. When you look back now, you would never think that Dr Murphy was ever not comfortable in front of the camera. But perhaps more importantly, his presence and the presence of other senior public servants has confirmed the importance that the leadership of the public service must have a public profile. They have a different role to our elected leaders, but they provide that assurance, that independence and the expertise that is uniquely theirs. So, back to the unfolding story of Australia's response to COVID-19. While Dr Brendan Murphy and Caroline Edwards were leading the response to the health crisis, Catherine Campbell and Rebecca Skinner were dealing with the impact of the decision to close the borders on the Australian people. Sometimes uh, you may be better off if you just don't know what you're in for. Um, I had uh, spent the summer myself um, uh, acting both as the Associate Secretary in Defence and acting as the Secretary of Defence through that bushfire piece when Defence actually was uh, in lockstep and working really closely with Services Australia. And then we rolled into the COVID-19 and I'd been working on the COVID-19 response in Defence on the uh, the big 75-inch TV that plays sport in my lounge room for mainly my husband, um, uh, he's saying to me, there's Centrelink queues are on the TV. There's already cues outside. People 
do you think that's got an impact on you? He said to me, and I'm thinking to myself, just maybe it does. So what do you do? You get all the people you can around you. Um, they know what's going on. You know that you've got a lot of terrific people and you find a way to marshal all of that expertise and you accept all the help that people offer you, uh, both from our portfolio, DSS, but across the Commonwealth. Um, and that's sort of how we got started on, um, OK, just what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? And just keep a, a really laser-like focus on what the challenge was and that's what we did. How do you manage the pressure as it's starting to build, as the system wobbles, as the phones start to call, as it starts to build up, and I'm sure there's pressure, you know, coming into the minister's offices and the prime minister's office and everyone, it's it's time to solve the yeah. problem. How do you manage that? Look, the way I look, the way I manage it is is you you. Um, it was a moment that the leadership team worked as a team and the best thing to do is acknowledge the pressure and share the pressure so that no one person feels more under pressure than the other. Acknowledge that this is difficult, acknowledge that it's hard, but know that, well, we're the ones here, so um, uh, we'll just keep focusing on that delivery. Our minister yesterday said um, that, you know, if service is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. And I think that is really an important... Um, it's, a, it's a great statement. It certainly does help people's career to have been involved in service. Um, we are Australian public servants. We are servants of the people of Australia. Um, it is, it, it's been tremendous and I think it will be very helpful to so many people that um, as Australian public servants, they will be able to reflect on a time where they actually helped and served Australian citizens directly. Rebecca Skinner. And help they certainly did, particularly in service delivery, where the mission of serving the Australian people is where the rubber hits the road. That heightened sense of mission, of purpose that drove innovation in the way that problems were being solved and solved very quickly. One example of that innovation was in the reform of the short-form claim for the important job seeker support. Ailsa Borthwick from Services Australia led that reform which was recognised with an innovation award at Services Australia. Our current claim process for the job seeker claim is about 164 questions and it takes around 55 minutes for someone to do that. So for us we were challenged to get that down to a process that we could be, could be completed within five days um, and to bring that question set down to about 10 questions. Wow. And the announcements came out on about the 20th of March. We had this fully implemented by the 14th of April. What questions were you asking yourself that enabled you to go from 164 to 10? To 10, yeah. So um, for us, um, I, I, we sat there one night, I sat there with my colleague Brendan and we went through and sort of went really looking at the legislation and trying to understand what was the minimum viable product, the minimum set of questions that actually helps us determine somebody was eligible for payment. Because the integrity of payments is very important to Australians. That's Ailsa Borthwick, but certainly the integrity of those payments is also very important to the people who are accountable for taxpayers' money. So while the health department dealt with the health crisis and Services Australia dealt with the people in crisis, 
It was Treasury who was working out how to pay for it. Secretary of the Treasury and IPA ACT President Dr Stephen Kennedy. The pandemic is is just a constant sort of uncertainty, un, unknown scenarios, if you like. My key timing point was I was asked by, uh, in one of those meetings, uh, about the, a paper I wrote in 2006 about pandemics, the macroeconomic impacts of pandemics. And I remember saying to that person, because that person said, oh, you know, is that going to guide what we're going to do? And I said to that person, I hope not, because that paper was about a very serious pandemic, the type of pandemic that's unfolded. And back in February, we were still thinking maybe this will be a SARS-like, maybe this will be contained in China. Um, But it was at that point, I I suppose, in my mind, I actually went back and read the paper again because I wrote it a long time ago, 2006, and started to think if this goes, you know, big, if this goes everywhere, um, what's this going to look like? The reason I was very focused on JobSeeker first was the system was there and we could scale it immediately. So that was the 550 supplement on the COVID side. And I also think that part of um, uh, the argument I put at the time was not only does it stabilise the economy, but it stabilises the community because they understand effectively a, a basic social wage is thrust into in, thrust into um, uh, into the economy. Then then we, as soon as that is done, um, we begin to think about do we do a wage subsidy over the top? And uh, and it's sort of readily apparent that you're, you're going to do something. And then, we ha- and then we're thinking through what systems we have at the ATO and how to design. Some people wanted us, would have wanted us to do a wage subsidy that tracked a person's wage up to a cap, which was a mechanism used in other countries, in Canada, for example. Uh, but we chose uh, to advise the government and they chose to accept in the end a flat payment Based scheme partly for speed, ability, ability to to align it with the jobs with the job seeker uh, with the job seeker arrangement, and then the second thing was apart from the obvious benefits of attaching people to their employer, the job keeper piece, was we had to assist um, um, Department of uh, Human Services in being able to make this payment to all these people who would no no longer be receiving a payment because. Job seeker goes from about eight hundred thousand to one point six million, more than two million when you include other cases. Uh, their systems were very stretched, so we had two really powerful systems in the Commonwealth: the tax system and the social security system. We used one, and JobKeeper is not just a wage subsidy; it's actually an income payment as well. Dr. Stephen Kennedy. One of the features of the Australian response was that it was a national response involving not just the federal government, but the governments of all states and territories. Australia responded as a team and aligned its governance accordingly. Katie Hare, a former senior Australian public servant who is now serving in the ACT government, reflected on the differences when working in a smaller jurisdiction and the ability to be able to get things done quickly. This took my breath away. I couldn't believe you could do this so quickly. Within a couple of days of the decision that we'd shift to online learning, we had five and a half thousand teachers. That's pretty much every single teacher, well, close to every single classroom teacher, um, doing online professional learning to improve their skills Mm. so that they they would be ready 
for supporting kids in the online environment. There's also a really strong sense of immediacy and closeness to where our services are being delivered and in my case you know the education through schools. We've got 88 schools here in the ACT and um, I can speak to a you know a representative group of principals. I can speak to about 25% of them on a phone hookup um, that I can organise in the space of about an hour and they will because they feel that sense of closeness to us they'll They'll make the time to hop on a video chat and give me their advice and tell me what's going on in their schools. It's so much closer than working in that much bigger system where organising a meeting of principals might take weeks. Obviously, at a time like this, we don't have weeks. And so it's really crucial that that we're able to make the most of the scale to get in touch with people and get things done. Katie Hare. Well, people who were also getting things done, but this time away from Australia, were the men and women of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who were working day and night in countries all over the world to get their fellow Australians home to safety. Francis Adamson is the head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I absolutely take my hat off to colleagues here in Canberra who've been working night and day, to colleagues around the world, because we've got still got 70% of APS staff, if you like, in place overseas serving Australia from a wide variety of departments. I remember early on looking at a map of the world on which was a, a little star for every cruise ship on which Australians were stranded and somehow affected and needing our help. You know there's a cruise ship, but there are hundreds of the things, thousands at any one time around the world. Where are the Australians? Where are Australians in on COVID-affected ships? What testing arrangements are in place? Where can they land? And, of course, you don't uh, start to do business continuity planning on the day you need it. When you're going through a period of change, you really want input from people who think differently, input from... from uh, young leaders, emerging leaders, future leaders, leaders of any kind, people who can think differently. And I think what that's done is effectively, if you like, almost, I won't say it's totally collapsed the public service in terms of hierarchy, but it's much more around what you can do, what ideas you can bring to the table, how can we make this work? Mm. So in terms of the recovery, the role of business, Mm. and as we move into recovery, into what will be a new economy, Mm -hmm. the role of business to create employment, to generate tax revenues, etc. What's your reflections on that and the role that DFAT will play in the new economy? Yep. We can get a certain amount of growth domestically, a population of 25 million, it's not small, but to really get things going, we need to have those connections to the rest of the world for trade, for investment, for tourism, for international students. And part of the work that we're doing in terms of our policy thinking and advice to government is around the temporary nature of these measures and how they might be undone when the time is right. What does recovery look like? As the Prime Minister says, it's about the other side. What does it look like as we continue to help Australians in terms of uh, jobs, in terms of economic growth? Francis Adamson. Well, back in Australia, Mike Pizzullo, the Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs, was reporting for duty. Mobility was an essential characteristic of the APS response. 
And at the Department of Home Affairs, under the leadership of Mr Pizzullo, they were only too happy to oblige. The fact that you've got a, a, a staff, and a, well, a department in the first instance, and then a workforce that's in that department that has got multiple skills, multiple subject matter expertise, uh, multiple, indeed, uh, several uh, strands of quite distinct subject matter expertise and life experience, which has then come together into one synthesised body known as the workforce, meant that we had both large scale, but we had a reservoir of specialised capability across all of those sectors and more, ones that I haven't mm. even mentioned. And then we were able to wield that, um, that force, that, that workforce, against the problems that we had to face. So we are able to make ourselves available to our colleagues in health, in industry and elsewhere saying, what do you need done and when do you need it done by? And of course, when my colleagues say, well, what can you deliver? We say, well, we've got a thousand people ready to go. What do you need done? Uh, a, that was helpful to them because the cavalry was able to arrive because these tend to be smaller departments, simply just a function of the way the departments are, are organised. And we say to it, we said to our staff then, and we continue to say it now, um, don't worry about the fact that you're not deeply expert in how supermarkets restock their shelves mm. because you've got the general skills of an Australian public servant first and foremost. Second, secondly, you're a departmental officer and then thirdly, you're a visa officer or a customs officer. So start with the first of those. You're an Australian public servant. You can problem solve. You can work your networks. You can collaborate. You can draw on other connections, both your own personal skills and knowledge plus that of your network and apply yourself to a problem. So we had staff from the get-go working on supply chain issues, trucking curfews. Team Australia really came together. They said, yep, what do you need done? We said, we need trucks to be able to go in to restock the back of Coles, Woolies, IGA and yes, yeah, we're on board. Mm. It was a great team effort. What's next? What's the next big challenge? Obviously, you've been at the, you've, you've had your hands on this for a while. Um, what, what's the future look like the, for you? The, the next challenge uh, is the same answer as what I would have given you yesterday <laughs> and the day before, and uh, Jacob, who's, who's here with me today, can attest to this. It's as I walk out, I'll, there'll be some WhatsApp group or some message group that I'm on, and a minister or group of ministers or, or the Prime Minister himself will say, I need you to do this, and uh, picking up the uh, themes I just expounded upon, the answer will be, yep, I've already thought of that, I've got the organisational team, uh, it's like it's like those um, in my in my trade we shouldn't call it a heist movie because we're not oh, like, yeah. but it's the ethos <laughs> of a nations team, right? Yeah, so okay. All right. now now David, I, I won't suggest that you or I could play the could be played by either Clooney <laughs> or Pitt, but the idea is, and we're not into heist because we do law enforcement, so we're on the other team. But the idea of mix and matching, uh, and I'm very passionate about this yeah, in case you hadn't picked it up. Yeah, yeah, got it. Uh, so whether it's that sort of ethos that you get in, a, in those ocean series or similar, okay. you put the team together, you, you crack through on the task, and then you leave enough capacity when it's become routine and industrialised and, and those other teams then move on. So uh, you ask me what's next, it'll be on my phone, I suggest, when I walk out. Mike Pizzullo. In the very first episode of Work With Purpose, we spoke to Peter Walcott, the Australian Public Service Commissioner, and Catherine Jones, who was then a deputy at the Department of Finance, but perhaps most importantly, the head of the Chief Operating Officers Committee. That committee played such a vital role in supporting the Secretary's Board to deliver the APS response. But while focused on delivering in the moment, uh, Catherine returned for a, another podcast, but this time 
in conversation with Matt McMahon, who is the SES sponsor of IPA's Future Leaders Committee, and Holly Noble, who is the chair of the Future Leaders Committee. And they were looking to the future as to how the APS could continue to improve. Catherine Jones. How do you contribute to making your organisation uh, an organisation that has a dynamic approach to change, that it's ongoing, that it's not transactional, it's not static, uh, that it's built into the DNA of the organisation uh, and you've got the capability to constantly uh, refine and improve the way that you organise yourself and that the way that you operate. Uh, and I think uh, having that longer time horizon... Uh, is really important and uh, has helped me think a little bit differently about change. And I think uh, another really keen area, and it was one of the themes which was around maintaining momentum with surge capacity to support greater mobility in more of an agile way. And I think the hackathon uh, participants highlighted issues around, you know, we should have an APS-wide process for surge mobility, you know, including criteria that sit around that. Um, you know, how do we know the priorities across government to, to do that? There's not, you know, there's not necessarily a list that everyone just taps into every day. It's, it's more complex than that. Um, so I think another area was around mobility and secondment architecture and how to, you know, the secondment way, using secondments as mobility. So um, any thoughts on how mobility is, is really sort of moved, perhaps since, since your first podcast and now, but probably more broadly across, across the APS? My starting proposition is one APS. Uh, and I think if you if you start thinking uh, uh, about your your role and your contribution as being part of that much broader entity, psychologically, uh, the idea of moving to different parts of it um, is a much uh, straightforward proposition. Um, and, and I think um, the leadership across the breadth of the APS uh, are increasingly thinking in those terms. Something else that you talked about was the commitment of people being really important to underpin effective transformational change. And culture and collaboration as a value that we have as part of our culture came up a lot. The group spent quite a lot of time discussing that. There was an interesting point put across that possibly collaboration is often not put forward because it's there's a competitive slant to things, particularly when budget becomes involved. There was some reflections that um, culture is often different depending on which team uh, you're working in um, and it's often transient depending on which people are in that team at what time. We know as uh, future leaders that there is a role for leadership at all levels and we all play a, a role in building um, a dynamic culture that values collaboration but it's often difficult to know where to start. The way to deliver solutions for the Australian people, it absolutely requires collaboration. Um, and uh, I, th I think if we can have that as the fundamental mindset when people enter the APS, uh, that, that that's how you'll be... It, the way to be rewarded in your career, the way to achieve in your career, the way to deliver the best outcomes is through collaboration. I think um, we... The, the COVID experience has taught us uh, that we actually do have the capacity to very quickly pivot and push resources to the highest priority. Um, the, the challenge for us is how do we ensure we can do that in a non-crisis environment? 
Uh, I certainly think we can. I think we've proven uh, we've proven the case uh, that we can respond uh, in in difficult circumstances, but I think we can now translate that into a more enduring model. Catherine Jones. Now, while it has been important to focus on the work of the APS in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been equally important to learn more about our leaders in the APS as people. They carry huge responsibilities, but like the rest of us, they still put their shoes on one at a time when they get out of bed in the morning. Peter Walcott told me this wonderful story. This is just an incredible uh, time um, for the public service and, and to do things. But I am interested in, in, in you as people and, you know, how has this affected you and your family? You, you know, you, you have a family but you're the head of the Australian Public Service Commission. How, what sort of impacts have there been for you? Yeah, well, you mentioned mentioned my father. In fact, one of the things I've had to do is uh, is drive down to Sydney, pick him up about ten days ago, and bring him down to bring him down to Canberra to live with us. I mean, he's 92, lives by himself. All his coffee shops and bars and restaurants have closed around him, and he can't cook, can't do laundry. And I thought, hang on, I can't just leave him there. Um, so he's uh, he's living with me, as is my son and his girlfriend and the, her guinea pigs and his my son's cat and my daughter's joined us from Melbourne. So it's a, it's a menagerie at the moment. So working from home, which I'm trying to do every now and again, is a challenge. But it's a challenge for a lot of people, yeah. I reckon. Peter Walcott. And this great story from Rebecca Skinner. Look, health and wellbeing in a crisis is really important. People can keep going a long time on adrenaline um, and it's important to uh, just type try and stop um, and have a bit of a bit of a break. From me personally, people in Services Australia will know I walk my dog. She's called Sparkles. I kept up my exercise. Uh, that was what was important to me to give me that keep that fitness going um, and trying to eat well. It is okay just to stop. I also will admit to maybe watching some junk TV at some points in time. Not completely going to disclose what sort of junk TV I watch. No, 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 that'd be truly. I'll I'll, I'll own up to a dog called Sparkles, but not junk, my junk TV. But, um, but, you know, just to take that 40 minutes to just watch something stupid on television that's completely unrealistic is, um, is, is useful as well as exercise and sort of eat well. Rebecca Skinner. And this reflection by Frances Adamson. You know, you build resilience through your own experience and I think managers need to help staff build resilience too. It's got to be part of a conversation. You want people to grow, to to use this opportunity, this opportunity for tremendous growth at the moment, but you don't want to uh, weigh people down too heavily because then what is otherwise a positive experience becomes a negative. So I think you have to know yourself and I would say... This might surprise people a bit. I think it helps to be able to somehow look at yourself in a detached way, to mm. just be a bit objective about, you know, what are your signs of stress? Are you are you snapping at people? Have you got sort of aches and pains that you don't normally have? All of those sorts of things. So you can become more resilient if you're looking after yourself. Francis Adamson. So as we look back on an incredible year of change, of challenge, of resilience, of endurance, of innovation, of challenge. It's perhaps 
right that we give the final words to the Australian Public Service Commissioner, Peter Woolcott. One of the, sort of the main themes that came out of the 30 review were the need for much more joined up public service, so the idea of one APS, and also focus on, on the needs of Australians and the service we provide to them. And what this crisis is doing is actually driving that, that, th those reforms in a very real and practical way. And uh, I, I actually think the reform process even though it's not being openly discussed and we're not going into sort of lengthy papers and working out how we need to do this, it's actually happening in practice. And that is actually, I think, uh, uh, in what, is a, what, are, what are very grim times, is, is going to be very beneficial uh, in the future. We're not working from a playbook. This is on a scale that none of us who are working in the public service now have ever dealt with uh, in terms of its, uh, its implications in, in regard to people's health, uh, people's welfare, uh, the economic implications, the, the national security implications. Uh, it is, uh, and people are working extraordinarily hard at every level of, uh, of the public service. But it is, as I say, we're feeling our way a bit, I've got to say, because it, uh, it is something that none of us have ever had to do on this scale. The ability of Treasury uh, and uh, uh, to pull together that package last week um, the, uh, the the the, um, the 130 billion dollar package in enabling yep. people to keep their jobs, which was going to get impact on six million uh, employees. That's an extraordinary uh, piece of work and quite revolutionary in its thinking. And to do that so quickly, you actually set back. I mean, I wasn't involved; I had nothing to do with that. But you just sit back and you say, well, "That's really quite uh, quite something." I just think the whole public service has risen to this. And it's, to me, it's, it's just, it's what, we, it's what we do. It's what we're meant to do. And I just think it's been really impressive. Peter Walcott. And I have to agree, it has been impressive. And it still is impressive. But where to from here? How do the 150,000 Australian public servants continue to deliver, continue to act, continue to respond? How do they continue to learn and how do they continue to improve and get better at serving the government, the parliament and the Australian people? Well, that will be the future focus of Work With Purpose, a podcast with no end date. The work of the Australian public service is critically important and infinitely fascinating. It is vital that we continue to shine a light on the work of our APS as we look to the future and the great challenges that lie ahead. A big thanks to the team at IPA and the Australian Public Service Commission for making Work With Purpose a reality. Without that support, this program would not happen. And for my team at Content Group, who have worked so diligently and so hard to bring this to you every week for the first part of the year and now every fortnight, a very big thanks to all of them. It's been a privilege to be involved and we look forward to many more stories about the APS in the years to come. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me.